We're in Acts 26 today, and we're just going to jump right in. Um, Paul has been making his defense, um, really in trial after trial, these trumped up charges against him. Uh, Right now, he is before uh, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, uh, who is the, uh, he was the last uh, Jewish king in Rome. So jumping right in, in verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul's here before King Agrippa. And like he said, this is, uh, he, he's a person that is accustomed. He, he, he's aware of uh, the Jews, of their beliefs, of their customs, of their controversies. Uh, and Paul is, in one sense, he is defending himself, right? He is uh, on trial. But even more so, his hope is to share about Jesus, so that Agrippa and anyone else that is listening that day, um, and even those of us reading uh, later, uh, will come to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. So he begins by explaining to Agrippa that, that all of the Jews uh, know, they can testify to what kind of person that Paul was before he met Jesus. He was committed to Judaism. Uh, he, he loved Yahweh, worshiped Yahweh. He was a part of the strictest, um, the strictest group, the Pharisees uh, in their religion. Uh, so there's an element of Paul saying to the people listening, like, hey, I, I'm, I'm like you, right? I'm, I'm not that different from you, or I wasn't that different from you. Uh, Agrippa certainly wasn't a Pharisee, but he was Jewish. You, you probably wouldn't even classify him as a good Jew, um, but, but the Jews were his people, right? He understood what Paul was talking about as, uh, as a Jew. Uh, and Paul, this follower of Jesus, looked absolutely crazy to uh, Herod Agrippa, uh, which, which Agrippa would say as much as say, Paul, you are out of your mind. And to people who do not believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, Christians, if we're honest, like we can look pretty strange to the world. Um, and in fact, we should look different, right? We, we, should, uh, we should have different priorities. We shouldn't, uh, 
We shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't stress about the things that the world stresses about. We should look different because God's word shapes us, because the resurrection has changed us. So Paul seems crazy to Agrippa. But before Paul met Christ on the way uh, to Damascus, the trajectory of his life was, was very different. Than, than, than this person that Paul or that Agrippa is experiencing. In verse four, Paul builds this bridge, right? To say, man, I, I was very Jewish. I was passionate uh, in following Yahweh, right? The, the Jews in Jerusalem can confirm this. They know I was a Pharisee and a really good one at that. And then in verse six, the connection continues. And he's saying, this is the reason I'm on trial. I'm on trial because of the hope in the promise that God made to our fathers, right? He doesn't say to their fathers, my fathers. He says to our fathers, right? The hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. And part of telling our story with Christ is sharing what we were like before Christ. Paul gives us really this, this template of how to share our testimony. Um, what, what I was like before Christ how I became uh, convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead, that I needed him as my savior and, and what Christ has done in my life since turning to him. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller in his book, uh, Prodigal God, which if you have not read it, it is, it is a, a really, it's a good read. It's a quick read. Um, but but he, he uses this term that I haven't seen anywhere else. He, he calls it self-salvation. Right? That, that everyone outside of trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, uh, they determine a, a way of living their life. And, and, and he says, uh, Tim says, this is their self-salvation. So in the story of the prodigal, there's two sons, uh, an older son and a younger son, and each one decides their own way. And, and, and Tim says, both of these are, are uh, forms of self-salvation. The younger son, his self-salvation was to pursue everything that brought him pleasure. Right? If, if he had the, the means for it, he was going to do it. He was going to get everything that he could out of life. And the older brother, he, he chose a much different way. Right? He worked really, really hard to follow the rules. He worked really hard to do everything as rightly as possible. He wanted his dad to know that he was a good, good son, that he was ethical, that he was the, the, the most moral person out there. And those certainly aren't the only two categories, but those are the two given in the story. And, and for each of them, uh, their form of self-salvation, it didn't work out, right? They needed a savior. So I ask you, if you are a believer today, how did you live before Jesus, right? What did you think would, would work out? If you chose this path in life, what, what did you think would work? Maybe your story was doing everything possible to be successful. I think we see a lot of that in our area, right? So maybe it started even just as a little kid, just trying to get the best grades possible, right? So that you could get in to that dream university, get into the program that you wanted, and then you land that internship, and you're networking like crazy so that someday you can get your foot in the door, and then finally you land that job, and maybe it's not your dream job, but, it, but it's the job to get you where you want to go. And, and as soon as you hit the ground, man, it's pedal to the metal. You want to show your boss what you're made of. And you work uh, obsessively longer and harder than almost anyone else so that you can get ahead. And maybe that was a major part of your story until you realize, man, this is a dead end. 
This doesn't actually get me the things that I thought it was going to get me. And then your eyes were open to Jesus. Right? Maybe that's not your story. And my story is much like the older brother in, in uh, the story of the prodigal. I, I just wanted to, I tried to be a really, really good person. I, I wanted to be really moral. Uh, I wanted to be a, a good community member, a good citizen. Uh, I wanted to be honest. I, I wanted at least to look like I was full of integrity. That was my, that was my form of self-salvation. I trusted that I could be a really, really good person, and that would get me what I wanted. But inside, I knew. I knew I wasn't as good as I projected. And, and even when I worked really, really hard, there was no way I could be good enough. And God started using scripture in me that I'd learned since I was a little kid. And I realized I need God's grace, right? No, no matter how hard I work at doing good things, it, it's never gonna cancel out the bad things. It's never gonna cancel out my, my sin, my rebellion against God. And I, I realized I need Jesus. Right? There's an aspect of, of Paul telling the king and others, like I wasn't that different than you. Like you, you can relate to where I was, Paul says. And, and, and certainly he roots his connection in this hope, this promise that was made to uh, their fathers, the hope that causes Jewish people to worship God. And again, Agrippa was well acquainted with Jewish beliefs. And I'm going to borrow some imagery from our friend Ron Frost. This is more than a year ago in a sermon he used this. Um, and, and some of you, many of you actually, as I look around the room, you're probably too young to remember that this used to be at libraries. But you would go uh, when, you needed, when you needed a book. You'd go to, uh, to, to this uh, oh, blanket on the name, card catalog. I think, yes, thank you. And all of these little drawers, right? And, and you'd go and you're like, I want a, I want a book on this topic. And, and you'd pull out that drawer. And even though it was a, a little drawer, it was deep. It would come out so far and you're like thumbing through actual paper, right? Not the internet. You're thumbing through trying to find like, oh, this, this is the topic. This, this is the book that I wanted. So, so Ron, uh, Ron was saying, he used that imagery to say, uh, like here with Agrippa, as soon as Paul talks about that hope, it, it's like, it's like this, this card catalog, this long drawer with all this information, it, it comes to Agrippa, right? Because he, he knows, he knows the Jews, he knows their beliefs. So this one phrase, the hope of our fathers, instantly floods Agrippa with, with things like this, right? With, with the first promise of the Savior in Genesis 3.15, right? The Savior that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Or like Isaiah 25, 8 and 9, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Paul says hope, and he, he thinks of that, or maybe he thinks of Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Ezekiel 37, 13. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you, uh, uh, raise you from your graves, O my people. Or Daniel, Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul's relating to all the beliefs that his fellow Jewish people share. Right? In that way, Paul is not different. And he is right that he is on trial for this Jewish hope. And what Paul is telling Agrippa and everyone else that can hear him is that Jesus is that hope that the people of Israel had been waiting for for generations and generations. The Jews knew that God would send the Messiah, but they didn't expect a Messiah like Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was, there was uh, both the Messiah that would be this conquering king that was portrayed, but there was also the, the Messiah uh, that was portrayed that would be the, the suffering Messiah. And, and for us, it's easy to look back into the Old Testament and go, oh, yeah. Like we can see as we look through the lens of Jesus, we can see both the conquering king Messiah and the suffering Messiah. But, man, they missed it. Right? They, they wanted a powerful king. They wanted, they wanted a king that would conquer Rome, but Jesus would come and conquer in a way that was completely unexpected, right? He was this suffering Messiah, and they didn't want, they weren't looking for a Messiah that would lay down his life for them. They wanted a powerful king, but they could not comprehend the power of King Jesus that he came with. He came with power not just to overthrow a political party, but the power to defeat sin and death. So Paul's connecting all of this to Jesus and very specifically to the resurrection. Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung points out that the resurrection is what makes sense of Paul's life. Like Paul's life could not be explained at this point apart from the resurrection. Nothing else made sense of who he was, of, of how he lived, what he believed, of everything that he had given up, of how he changed. Nothing outside of the resurrection made sense of that. So Paul wants Agrippa to see and to understand the importance of the resurrection. And Luke, the author of, of Acts, he, he wants the same thing. If you go back through Acts and you look through every speech, every sermon, in there someone mentions the resurrection. If you look in the, the New Testament, the resurrection is mentioned one way or another over 300 times. Like the resurrection is, is important. And I've been sitting here going, man, do we only talk about the resurrection on Easter or when we go through Acts? Like we've been talking resurrection a lot, but man, Luke and the New Testament authors and Paul, man, they want us to see and understand how critical the resurrection is. Christianity hinges on the resurrection. So this passage um, here with Paul in Acts 26, it's labeled as Paul's fifth defense. And, and that is true. But again, it's so much more than a defense. Right? He, is, he is testifying about Jesus. He wants Agrippa to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ and to put his faith in Jesus for salvation, not, not Agrippa's form of self-salvation. Here's a sneak peek in the next week's passage, uh, Acts 26, 26 and following. For the king knows about these things, this is Paul speaking with Agrippa still, but the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." 
right? Paul wants them to believe. And the resurrection is what makes sense of Paul's life. Paul's trajectory was this rising star among the Pharisees. He was the up-and-coming young Pharisee, full of promise. He studied under the, the Pharisees of Pharisees at the time, uh, Gamaliel. Um, before he met Jesus, when Paul came into a room or, or even into town, I'm sure people noticed, like, man, is that Paul of Tarsus? Can you believe he's here? Man, that guy is zealous. I've heard about him. Man, he's been persecuting the Christians all over the place. He's a big deal. Like the, the chief priests have, have released him to go do this. I, I wonder, I wonder what he is going to do over the next like five to 10 years for the Jews, right? We look at, at verses nine through 11. He was aggressively and passionately uh, just raging, on the Christians. He was fighting Christians and Christianity. He locked Christians up and, and, and he, when they were uh, going to die, he, he was the one casting votes for them to die, but he wasn't satisfied to just get rid of the Christians like in his area. No, he pursued them even to foreign cities to try and eradicate this brand new religion. But everything has changed. Right? He's been traveling for years, at times living on really next to nothing so that he can teach about Jesus to anyone that will listen. He's been beaten. He's been in prison, right? Not, not what people imagined for this up and coming uh, young Pharisee. This is not what anyone predicted for Paul, but the resurrection shaped Paul. It transformed Paul. Meeting the resurrected Jesus changed everything for Paul, and it's what makes sense of his life. So I ask you, does the resurrection make sense of your life? If you're a Christian, right, has the resurrection changed you? What about you has changed because Jesus rose from the grave? Or you can look at it from, from a different angle. Like if the resurrection it didn't happen, if it wasn't real, would you be different? Like would you, would you be the same as you are now? Verse 8 probably jumped out at you as, as I read it. It says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And we're going to look at this from two different uh, vantage points. Uh, why, would, why would someone think it's incredible that God raises the dead? If you're a Christian, if you've been in church for a while, maybe even your whole life, you've heard about the resurrection over and over again. And, and maybe it's, it's never even been hard for you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to borrow an illustration uh, to help us understand why it, it can be really, really hard to believe. Um, I think I mentioned my grandpa, maybe even just in last week's sermon. But my grandpa died, I think it was about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, so he's buried in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I've not been to his grave uh, since, since the, the graveside service. But let's say that I, uh, I bump into you and you ask how I'm doing, what I'm up to. I'm like, oh, I'm great. I'm actually, I'm going to go to Dallas and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my grandpa's grave for the first time in, in like 17 years. And you're like, oh, man, that, that's great. What are you going to do? And like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to think about my grandpa, um, bring in some flowers. Uh, I don't know, maybe pray for a little bit. And anyway, I go on my trip. I come back, and you see me, and you, you say, oh, how was your trip? How was, how was visiting your grandpa's grave? And I've just got this look on my face like, it was great. Like, it was way better than I ever expected. And, and then I say this. I say, Gramps is with me. And, and you look at me, 
And you think that's a pretty weird way to put it. But you know, sometimes, if we're honest, people, when, when a loved one dies, we can kind of say some weird things sometimes. So knowing me, you conclude that I just felt like some sort of connection with my grandpa. I felt close to him, even though he died years ago. But I really quickly dispel that that is what I mean. When I tell you that my grandpa's grave was empty, and I go into this whole story, right? I, I tell you, I go to visit his grave, and I find where, where, where it was, and, and it's been dug up, and I'm furious that they dug up his grave and, and, and the coffin was empty. And I, I, I'm looking around and I see this guy that he, he looks like kind of the cemetery groundskeeper. And, and I go to him demanding to know like, where is Gramps? Like this is not right. And the guy says to me, Greg, and I realize that's not a groundskeeper. Man, that's my, that's my grandpa, that's Gramps. And I hug him. And, uh, and he's hungry, so he's like, let's go get something to eat. He loved Tex-Mex. We go get Tex-Mex. And, and I'm like, what do you want to do now, Gramps? And he says, man, I want to see my friends. So we plan this big open house. 500 people come through. We order Tex-Mex for everybody. It was awesome. If I told you that, you would immediately contact Matt. You get a hold of John and Scott and, and Gary, our elders. Together, you would game plan how to tell my wife, my sweet, poor wife, what I think. You'd certainly, you'd get someone else up here to preach for a long time. You'd order a psych eval for me because that sounds nuts, right? People don't rise from the dead. So on the, on the one hand, we can understand why Agrippa would think that rising from the dead really is incredible. Why, why, why you could say to Paul, are you, are you out of your mind? And I'm sure we can all relate to our non-Jesus believing friends and family and coworkers that have a really hard time seeing that the resurrection is possible. I wonder if a friend were to ask you, why do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? What would you say? Because I, I think, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we need to be ready to say more than because the Bible says so. And, and there's, a, there's a beauty to that statement. Do not get me wrong, right? We, do, we, need to, we need to believe Scripture for sure. And that might be enough for you where you are in your heart and mind to believe. But shouldn't we also be ready to give reasons to those who do not believe. Paul's given us uh, example after example of reasoning with people, with those who do not believe so that they may come to believe. I think of 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So maybe the Bible says so. Maybe that really is enough for you. But Peter is commanding us. He's saying, hey, that's great. Man, be ready. Be ready to reason with others, to share, right? Not, not in this argumentative way. He's saying do it with, with gentleness, respect, with humility. I'm not super into uh, apologetics and Christian apologetics. If you've never even heard that, it's, uh, it, it's just reasoned arguments to defend uh, Christian faith. Um, and, and I know there's, it's popular to say, hey, no one's ever been argued into the kingdom. 
I don't know if that's true, but, but in Acts, we certainly see that people have been reasoned into the kingdom, that Paul uses reason and eventually people come to faith. So I don't, I don't naturally gravitate towards uh, apologetics, but for the sake of being ready to share why I believe, I actually think uh, some of the work done in Christian apologetics is really helpful to us. So I want to share two podcasts that, that I recommend for you. And I think they'll be up on the screen here. So the first is uh, the Alicia Childers podcast, and it's not, it's not strictly um, apologetics, but, uh, but she loves apologetics. So it, it kind of, it, it seeps into at least every uh, episode, super good. And this will be on our website too, under resources. Uh, and then also uh, the cold, the cold case Christianity podcast. That's by uh, Jay Warner Wallace. You might recognize uh, that title because he wrote a book called cold case Christianity. Um, he actually has a, a book for kids. I think it's like eight to 12 year olds too. Uh, cold case, uh, cold case Christianity for kids. Um, anyway, he was, uh, uh, he worked for LAD, LAPD for like 20-some years um, investigating cold cases. He was an atheist. His wife, I want to say like more than a decade into their marriage, uh, for some reason wanted to go to church. Um, and, and he started going with her, and, he, and he's listening, um, and eventually says, man, I wonder if I could apply, like, how I work as a police officer, work in these cold cases, if I could apply that to, to figuring out, hey, is the New Testament legit? And, and, and he looked and he's like, okay, I, I think, I actually think it is. So I'm going to apply this to the whole Bible. And, and then, to, then to all these, these Christian beliefs and the guy ends up uh, becoming a believer. Anyway, his, his podcast is, uh, is great. Um, also, the last one on there, it's, it's a book, Body of uh, Proof. Um, and it's by uh, uh, PhD uh, Jeremiah Johnson. Really, really good book. I think it actually just came out a few uh, months ago. But I want to just share just some little tidbits from this book just to whet your appetite. Um, so he says, uh, not only do we know with confidence that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person, we also know that he was crucified, right? And, and he's saying this not, not only, not just from a biblical perspective, but, but with secular historians, with evidence, we know that Jesus really lived um, and we know, in fact, that he was crucified, that he died by crucifixion. He, he goes on to say this. He says, Jesus' death by crucifixion is the best established fact in the ancient world. This man's PhD, I should have said this, was on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he says that we know much about Jesus' life uh, from the Bible and extra-biblical resources. And when someone says extra-biblical, it just means outside of the Bible, right? In addition to or extra-biblical resources or sources. Uh, he goes on to say, one must appeal to Roman emperors to find equal documentation uh, that, that's nuts, right? In other words, he's saying that there's so much uh, documentation about Jesus of Nazareth, again, not just from scriptures, um, but from historians at the time, um, that the only other people in the ancient world that can rival that would be Roman emperors. Um, and, and just quick, like, rabbit trail. Um, when we hear things like that, and, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian, and whatever reason you're here, like maybe your spouse brought you or I don't know. But I think something like that should make you pause. Like why in the world do people that, that don't believe in Jesus find this man so intriguing that, that, that all of these people wrote about him? 
uh, Jay Warner Wallace, I was listening to um, his, his podcast just the other day, and, and this isn't about the resurrection either, but he points out how pervasive Jesus is in the arts, right? Through history, since, since, he, uh, since he lived, died, and rose, right? That, that, that in every major uh, time period, the top artists have created something that has to do with Jesus. And you can't say that about any other religious figure. Uh, he actually also said, I thought this is so cool. He, he said that um, if, if somehow we, uh, we lost the, the book of Mark, like somehow Mark's just destroyed and none of us have a copy of it anymore, we could just from art in, in the, uh, the, the first two centuries following Jesus, um, we, could, we could recreate the whole book, the whole gospel of Mark. Like that's how big of a deal Jesus is. And that doesn't prove that Jesus is God. Right? That doesn't mean he rose from the dead, but, but I do think it should make you pause and go, wait, if, if so many people have been so interested in him, even people that aren't Christians, man, should I look further into who this Jesus is? So back to the resurrection. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that, that I've always found convincing is that some of the fiercest critics came to believe that Jesus resurrected. Certainly we have uh, Paul's example, right? In this very chapter, he's presenting that as a reason to listen to him, right? If anyone hated Jesus and the resurrection, man, it was Paul. And yet everything changed. He said it was meeting the resurrected Jesus that radically changed him. Uh, another vocal critic of Jesus, and I'm sure many of you know this, was Jesus' own half-brother, James. Um, the brothers of Jesus did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, which seems pretty understandable, right? The, thinking that your sibling is not, uh, is not the Messiah, is not God. Uh, J. Warner Wallace asked the question, I think it's a good one. What would have to happen for you to believe that your brother was God? Right? Well, what in the world would have to happen to convince you that this sibling that you grew up with was God? Something pretty spectacular, right? Maybe like raising from the dead, and that's what it took for James. Paul tells us that the risen Jesus appeared to all kinds of witnesses, including Paul and including James. Um, but it's more than, than the Bible that records this about James for us. The historian Josephus, which I, I feel like I'm mentioning him every week now, um, Josephus was not a Christ follower, and, and yet he reports that uh, Jesus' brother James went from cynic to Jesus uh, a cynic of Jesus to proclaiming Jesus had risen from the dead and in 62 AD was martyred for that. Now, does, does being martyred prove that Jesus rose from the dead? No, it, it doesn't. It, it proves that you believe it, uh, right? No one will die for what they, they know is, is false. Uh, so if I were to die because I believe that Jesus was bodily resurrected, you would know that I truly believe it, but that's all my death would prove. It would prove my belief. But James, the apostles, um, th those who died that claimed to see the risen Jesus, it's different, right? They, they died for that claim. They claimed to be eyewitnesses. And, and again, uh, you aren't going to die for something that you know is a lie. And yet we know that so many of the eyewitnesses uh, died saying that Jesus rose. 
Uh, we even know from secular historians that, that, that within uh, just a generation of Jesus, that his followers claim to have seen the risen Jesus. And, and I, I bring that up because there are people today that will say, oh, later Christians, right? Generations later, they, they impose this back on the early church. And, and we know that that's not true. We know that, that people claim to really be eyewitnesses. And, and so, man, that's just like the tiniest little sample of, of, of things from like this book and, and other resources. Um, but man, there, there are reasons to believe in the resurrection. It seems to me that we should be ready to speak with, with knowledge, with conviction uh, about why we believe and, and why someone can believe in the resurrection. So again, verse eight, let's, let's look at it from another vantage point. Why do you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? So while there was a, a Jewish belief that there would be a resurrection, it was not about the, the Messiah dying and, and rising. It was a resurrection of all believers, an end of days a resurrection, that when the Messiah comes, that, that they would be raised. And we see an example of this uh, when Jesus raises uh, Lazarus from the dead. He's talking to his sister before he raises Lazarus. And, and Mary expressed, yep, I, I believe that he will rise on the last day. But, but she, didn't, she, she wasn't thinking of an individual resurrection. This was all of God's people that she's talking about. So there was an expectation expectation of a final resurrection, that that would happen, but they didn't have this category for uh, the Savior dying and being resurrected, which is uh, an important piece when talking with someone who, who might throw out there like, oh, the disciples just made this up, right? They're, they're trying to save face. No, it wasn't a category for them, right? They, they wouldn't have conceived to make this up. Uh, around the time of Jesus, both a little before and, and a little after, there, uh, there are at least 10 known people who claim to be the Messiah. All of them died. No one claimed that they rose from the dead. The Jews just didn't have th this, this, this way of thinking, this category of thinking of individual resurrection, especially for the Messiah. But they did believe in this final resurrection. So Paul part of what he's saying here is if you believe in this final resurrection, why is it thought incredible that God could do this, that God would raise the dead, right? By definition, God can do anything, right? If he's God, he can do anything at all. And it is surprising to me when someone says that they believe in God but they, they don't believe in miracles, that, that miracles are out of the question, that the supernatural is out of the question, right? What kind of God do you believe in if you don't believe that, that God has power over everything? A God like that is nothing worthy of worship. I, I, I don't even see how that could be considered a God. God can do anything. Yahweh is all-powerful. He created the universe by speaking it into existence. Certainly, he is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And if he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise us from the dead spiritual state that we're in without him. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans, but the gift of God is, is eternal life. And if, if God raises Jesus from death on the cross, he is most certainly able to raise you and me in, in, uh, to life in him because his death was sufficient to pay for our sins, right? He has the power to raise Jesus to life. And that tells us that he has the power to raise us to life too. So we do not have to remain stuck in our sin, right? We don't have to remain dead in sin. So when Paul says, why, why do you think it incredible 
that God raises the dead. That question certainly applies to Jesus' resurrection and it applies to us too, right? It applies to raising us to life as well. I know at times, maybe you, you, you just feel acutely the deadness of sin. You feel stuck in your sin, unable to save yourself. Paul's question applies to you. Do you believe that God can raise you to life, that God can forgive you of your sin? And that question isn't just for uh, those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Right? As Christians, we still we battle sin. We face our sin daily. We're convicted of our sin. And sometimes in shame, we are, we are just beaten down in that battle. And maybe you wonder, man, is Jesus really going to forgive me again? Right? I can't seem to stop this, this sin that I, I should have been done with decades ago. Right? This, this, uh, this love for, for material possessions, this, uh, this lust, uh, uh, man, I, my anger that I, I just can't seem to control or fill in the blank, whatever it is. Again, I ask, why do you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Jesus is our hope. Let me close with Romans 6, 4 and following. It'll be on the screen, or if you want, you can close your eyes and just listen. Paul writes, You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Yes, amen. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you that we, we do not have to remain dead in our sin, that we, we do not have to try and choose this, this mode of self-salvation that, that, that will get us nowhere, but Jesus, that you came, that, that not only did you live for us, you died for us, you were buried, you rose from the grave, and God, that is our hope. Lord, as we see that you've risen Jesus from the grave, man, we have hope that we too can raise with him, that we do not have to remain stuck in our sin, but that we can have life in you, that we can have forgiveness in you, that we can have fellowship with you, our creator. Jesus, we we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and and God, I pray that we would be people that truly are changed by the resurrection, that, that we would be people that, that, that over time, man, the resurrection is the only thing that makes sense of who we are, of how we think, and of how we live, Lord. 
We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.